you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. This show exists to help you build a thriving creative career. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into this episode. really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you, where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. my sound editor Alex Sugg will put some sound effects on that so it sounds really legit when we're doing these series I want them to feel like a to be continued episode uh, an episodic kind of TV thing so there you go last time we started the side quest the creative side quest series what is a creative side quest it is a side project that you add strategy to business strategy marketing strategy you add layers of strategy to your side project. I really do think that side projects that have no strategy are amazing. They're an amazing tool for developing your creativity. However, they're not always so good at developing your creative career. And I found that if you can add some layers of business and marketing strategy to your side project, it can become the most powerful tool for developing marketable work, for developing um, for, and for marketing your creative work. And so last episode, 
that we started this series and I told you that we call these creative side quests. And I got this side quest idea from the game Zelda. So I am a, a crazy Zelda fan. I've been playing Zelda since the first game on Nintendo, regular Nintendo. And if you don't know, Zelda is kind of like, uh, it's a game where it's a hero's journey where Link is setting out to save Princess Zelda, save the, all of Hyrule Kingdom from this mad evil spirit, Ganon. And, uh, and it's kind of medieval and you can think of it like Link is like a kind of a fairy man. He's got, or an elf of some kind. He's got pointy ears. He's got a green tunic and swords and bow and arrows and, and slingshots and grappling hooks and shields and all this kind of stuff. There's horse riding, all that good stuff. Potions. Um, that is Zelda. And the newest Zelda, which I've been obsessed with, it's called Breath of the Wild. It's on Nintendo Switch. And I'm just promoting it so that Nintendo don't sue me over <laughs> using this as the overarching analogy. Um, so uh, the new game, Breath of the Wild, what's really great about it is that it's open world. And so you can go straight to Ganon, the end boss, right from the beginning of the game. And... Last episode, we talked about how that's kind of like your creative career. Like if you want, you can directly market yourself right from the outset to your dream clients. But just like in Zelda, uh, where if you go straight to Ganon without completing any side quests, you will get destroyed, not by Ganon, but by the gatekeepers. You won't even get in the castle wall. There's like giant monsters that are going to destroy you before you even get a chance. The same is true in your creative career. If you don't do creative side quests before you go directly to your dream clients, you're probably not even going to get in the door. And so I'm doing a, I'm doing a series and we're going to talk about four layers of strategy that can enable you, my creative uh, hero, my creative chosen one, four things you can add to your side projects to transform them into creative side quests that can help you take down your creative Ganon. And on this episode, we're going to talk about the first one. So, the first layer of strategy that you need to bake into your side projects to turn them into creative side quests is what I call tailored. They have to, they have to be tailored to your end goal. Your, the work that you're doing, and that just means the work that you do in your side project should mirror the work that you want to get hired to do. It seems obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me, and it doesn't seem obvious to most people that I work with, but if you want to do book cover design, you should do a project of book covers. If you want to do editorial illustration, your project should clearly be editorial illustration. If you want to do logos for coffee companies, you should do logos for coffee companies for your personal project. And even if you already know that, there are some layers uh, and, and some 
depths of this idea that I want to get into this episode that will help you maximize your ability to tailor your project, your personal work to your end goal. And the more precise you can do that, uh, the more powerful your side quest will become. Does that make sense? So let's go back to Zelda real quick. You know, first of all, because I want to. Uh, and second of all, because it's relevant to this episode. Uh, so here's the thing with Ganon, you have to, if you want to defeat Ganon, you've got to get the master sword. You've got to have the right weapon for the right job. And if you go to Ganon without the master sword, you're going to have a hard time. You've got to do this side quest of finding this master sword, pulling it from the stone because you're the chosen one, and then you'll have a shot at defeating Ganon. So you've got to have the right weapon for the job, right? Does that make sense? And in the same way, you've got to have the right personal projects to prove that you're right for the job. And so even in Zelda, even before you get to Ganon, even not just on the level of the end boss, this applies to all of the people that you're fighting. So there's this, there's this, uh, there's these like spirit characters that are kind of tricksters. And there's like a fire one, an ice one, a lightning one. And so I would find these early in the game. I was, I would come upon one of these fire spirits. And, uh, when I first met him, I was like, man, I'm going to take this guy down. You know, I know I'm just new to the game, but I am going to fight this thing and I'm going to beat it. And so I would fight this fire spirit and it would take me like 10 tries. I would die like 10 times in the process of fighting this stupid fire spirit. And uh, I just thought, man, I really suck at this game. I can't even beat this random fire spirit. And so eventually... I would see these fire spirits and I would just run the other way. I wouldn't even be up for the challenge because I'd just get my butt whooped until eventually I used an ice rod on one of these fire spirits and in one hit, the fire spirit, uh, poof, was gone. And I realized that I didn't suck. My weapon did. And I think that when it comes to marketing your work or trying to get the jobs that you want, sometimes you'll approach a client and they won't even reply. Or if they do reply and they don't hire you, you can feel like, man, I suck. Like clear they, clearly they looked at my portfolio. They looked at my body of work. They looked at who I am. You know, the record label looked at my album. Hopefully they listened to it because you can't see music. Unless you're synesthetic. Is that what it's called? Synesthesia? Anyway, <laughs> most people can't see music. This is the tangent that I'm on. But, but what happens is you let them ingest your body of work. And if they don't see potential, then you assume I must suck. I don't have what it takes. But what if you don't suck? What if it's just your weapon that sucks? And you've got to have the right weapon for the job. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how you tailor your weapon. As a blacksmith, how do you make it perfect for taking down your enemy so that you're, you don't get 
killed 10 times beating the fire spirit, but you figure out you need to use the ice rod and you take them down in one shot. That's what I want to teach you how to do in this episode. unlock the solution, I think you have to understand the problem first. It's kind of like the design process where you define the problem before you go to solve it. Like there's so much power in that. So I want to tell you what, what the problem is in terms of, uh, you know, what are we trying to solve with this side quest? What are we up against when it comes to de developing marketable work and marketing our work, finding that place in the market where we fit? What, what's the beef? The first one is the potential problem. That's what I'm going to call it. And it's this idea that uh, I think that one of the things that happens is we think that people are going to bet on our potential or other people are able to see our potential, see what we're capable of before we actually prove it and go do it. And I think, why do we think like this? I think part of it is, I think, uh, you know, you, you, you probably hear me all the time talk about on this show, this idea of um, a toxic creative mythology. I really think that there are all this, all these ideas around what it means to be a creative person, what it means to make creative work, all these ideas surrounding the artist that actually work against their ability to make their best art and to thrive as a person. And one of the reasons I do this podcast is to hopefully battle against this toxic creative mythology that is holding people back from their full potential. And so one of the things that I think uh, is a big part of our mythology as creatives is this idea of the talent scout. So the talent scout is, you can think of them as like um, the fairy godmother. You can think of them as like Hagrid showing up to say, tell Harry Potter, you're a wizard. I see this potential in you that you don't even know about. And the same goes for fairy godmother with Cinderella. And we think that there are talent scouts out there scouring the earth for the people that have talent, for the people that have untapped potential. And I think it causes us to wait around for these moments or to expect someone else to figure out what our gift is and help us develop instead of recognizing our own gifting and proving it to other people. But the fact of the matter is this idea of the talent scout has never been less true. So we live in a time where Publishers, record labels, art directors, creative directors, all these people, they don't have to spend time and energy going out there scouring the earth for untapped potential anymore. And, and, and not only that, they can't afford to. With, with the way that um, the margins on print and the margins on record sales and, and the way that it's all worked out, they don't have the resources to spend time looking for untapped potential because it's too risky because they can go out, they find 50 bands and only one of them is going to have a profitable record. 
And so they don't want to spend that time. They don't want to risk wasting that time, risk wasting uh, money on the wrong people that don't, that, you know, they were wrong about the untapped potential. All they have to do is wait for the internet to, to prove who has the goods, who can deliver on the thing that they're looking for through the metrics of social media. And so they're waiting for people without the help of anybody else to rise to the top. And then they will cherry pick those people and they will then add their resources, their know-how to distribute that stuff, to help, you know, get it out to a wider market, to, you know, round, you know, round out the edges of these bands or artists or, or authors or whatever. And so the idea of the talent scout has never been less true. And yet I think this mythology is still deep within our bones. We're waiting for someone to see the potential in us. And not only that, when they don't, when we send an email to the illustration agent that we want to work with or the publisher that we want to work with and we don't get a reply or, or we get a rejection, we assume that they're looking not at what we can do or what we've done, but what we could possibly do. And when they take a look and they don't see anything, they don't see those metrics, they don't see something to cherry pick, and it seems too risky, we take that as we must suck instead of saying maybe our weapon sucks. We say maybe we don't have the potential and we get crushed rather than saying maybe we need to prove our potential. And so this is the first reason why tailoring your side project to its end goal, to the people you want to work with, you know, proving that you have what it takes, spelling it out, showing you can do exactly what they're looking for is a layer of strategy that will unlock this and turn it into a side quest. So I'll give you a little example of what I mean by this. One of my favorite side quests throughout history is Goodwill Hunting because it's such a good uh, it's such a good example of what I'm talking about. So Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, if you don't know, they wrote Goodwill Hunting and they starred in Goodwill Hunting and it was essentially them uh, creating this tailored side project to the careers that they wanted to have. So they were trying out for all these lead roles back in the 90s and I guess Ed Norton kept getting them uh, Matt Damon said and they were just sick of it so they decided to look at their own potential look at the, what they were good at look at the stories they could write and look at the types of movies that they think they should star in and go ahead and make that movie from start to finish and they did that they went up went made these movies Start in it, won the Oscars, and then that kick-started their career for the rest of time. They ended up getting lots of roles like that, lots of success in that uh, way. And so what they did, though, is that they made this the kind of movie that they should star in, and they, they didn't make a mock version of it. They didn't just make a trailer for the movie uh, a teaser or a mock of, you know, this is what it would look like if I was an editorial illustrator. This is what it would look like if you paid me to do a t-shirt. No, they actually made the t-shirt. And it's essential to doing, to, to doing it because you've actually got to get the results. You've actually got to go out there and prove that you've got the goods. 
And it doesn't mean you don't have to, you know, you don't have to sell as many books as you would if you were on that publisher's um, company. They know how to push it out. All they need to see is something, some results. You know, even if you're making a t-shirt, just someone wearing it and it looking fantastic. You've so for Goodwill Hunting, they won the Oscar. That ensured this person can act. Opinions aside, you know, it's debatable, but it told plenty of casting directors, plenty of directors, put this person in your movie, they've got the goods. And so the first thing you got to do is you've got to prove your worth. You can't sit around and wait for someone to see your potential. And that's, that, that is, uh, that by, by actually getting out in the world, getting some metrics, getting some facts around what you're doing, showing them that you can do exactly what you're, they're looking for, uh, is, is key, and it's one of the reasons why making tailored work is so essential. And I just want to speak to something real quick. So, like, um, one of the things that I run against when I'm working with creative people sometimes is that I will talk about this, and, and I can see them shrinking when I'm talking about doing this kind of reverse engineering strategy where you're taking the job that you want and essentially doing it for yourself, and I would say two things to that. Number one, uh, you know, every great creative I know talks about how constraints are the key to unlocking creativity. Having something to push against, having some wall is the key to knowing what to make. It's the key to, uh, you know, put backing you into a corner, forcing you to make some decisions. And that's all this is. It's, it's not taking all the fun out of it. It's not taking all the creativity out of it. You've still got to elevate. You've still got to give them something that they don't already have. You've, and so these coming up with these rules, you know, fitting within the type of work that they could hire you for, it should only enable your creativity. And then beyond that, I would say that if you're not willing to do this work for yourself, what makes you think that you're going to enjoy doing this work for somebody else? Yeah, you might get a thrill the first time New York Times reaches out. You might get a thrill the first time Starbucks reaches out or Nike reaches out or, or you know, Sony Records reaches out. You might get a thrill the first time round, but if it's not deeply authentic within you to make it, make this stuff, and the, you know, the third, fourth, fifth time they reach out, your heart's not going to be in it. And if your heart's not in it in the long run, you can't build a career on this in the first place. And so if you're not willing to do the work for yourself, what makes you think you're going to want to do the work for them? So you need to make sure it's an authentic fit. And you need to make sure that you don't think that adding constraints is somehow going to squash your creativity. And in truth, in practice, every great creative I know would say the opposite. The second problem that tailoring your side project work to the end goal, to the dream job that you want solves is the problem of sales, the problem of the fact that nobody wants to be sold anything anymore. We don't like to be sold. We like to discover, especially when it comes to creative stuff. Like I guarantee you, you don't listen. You don't have one favorite band that marketed to you. And then I would also assume that the last, you know, four out of the five uh, of the last bands that you got into, you felt like you discovered them all by yourself. Like, you know, 
a, a robot probably recommended them to you through like related artists on Spotify or through your purchase on Amazon or you know something you randomly found at the record store but I can almost assure you that you like to discover the work yourself and the people that want to hire you are exactly the same and so I would say direct marketing often can have the opposite effect that we're looking for like uh, you know, I think that there's a time and place for direct marketing, like when you need to get the, you know, light the fuse or you need to get the ball rolling. Sometimes it's all you can do is go straight to the the person you want to work with and say, please work with me, right? Like sometimes you got to do that. But I would say because people don't want to be directly sold to, because people don't want to work with a desperate artist, they want to work with an artist that's thriving, that's energized, that, that just is so... Uh, tuned in and and one that they there's a buzz around and a artist that they just happen upon that they discover because it, that person's just spreading like that's the kind of uh, way that someone wants to discover creativity um, or a creative person or an artist and because of that I think you've got to do the opposite of direct marketing which is what I call inception marketing uh, inception marketing is the opposite of direct marketing. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about the movie Inception. You ever see that movie? The movie Inception, spoiler alert, I'm not going to give away anything, I guess, but this could be on the back of the box. But, by the way, I don't know if I'm the first person to say this. Probably not, but I feel like there's got to be a statutes of limitations. That's not what it's called. That's something like that, about like where the law at some point... As time passes, the law no longer applies to like past events. I'm not a lawyer, but that's how I understand it based on, you know, the few movies I've heard them talk about that in. But I feel like there's got to be some kind of statutes of limitations, that statutes, statue, I don't, something like that on spoilers. Like if you haven't seen Inception by now, forget it. You're going to get it spoiled and you can just eat it. But anyway, the movie Inception, uh, Christopher Nolan made the movie and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio stars in it. It's just basically, it's my jam because it's about dreams. I'm into dreams and they go into someone's dream and they have to go deeper and deeper and deeper into their dream states and they're going to incept this idea into this person's mind in such an elusive, deep way that that person will think that it was their idea. They're going to give this idea to them in this deep dream state in such a way that the person thinks that it was them who came up with the idea. And that's the idea of inception. And that's the kind of in marketing that you need. You need inception marketing, not direct marketing. You need to make them think that it was them that thought you were the perfect fit for the job. And if you, the, the more clearly and the more precise you can reverse engineer and mirror back to them what they're looking for, the, more, the easier it is for when they discover it or when you pass it to them, for them to think, whoa, you are absolutely perfect for this job. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. So if you wanted to do the gift card illustrations for Target, you know, they have the gift cards at the end of the aisle, the happy birthday cards. You should do a project to those exact specifications that say happy birthday, and it shouldn't be a mock project. You should figure out how to make it your own project, but you should do it to the exact spe specifications. Another example of that is I worked with somebody that wanted to work with um, this big outdoor company, and, uh, and I said, 
Well, what would you be doing for them? And that's the question you need to ask. You start with, who do you want to work with? That's your, that's the beginning of strategy where we talked about that last week. What is your dream client? What's your dream goal? And then what would you be doing for them? What are they looking for? And that's how you pick the exact right weapon for the job. You say, this is exactly what they would hire me to do. And you try to tailor it to the exact specifications. And then you do it on your own and you prove that, that you are a viable solution for this. And hopefully, you know, I don't know if I, I think I just skipped over this and forgot to say, this person wanted to work for a giant outdoor company. And I said, Who, what would you be doing for them? And they'd say, well, maybe I would be designing their catalog. And I said, well, what their, what's their catalog like? Well, it's eight and a half by 11. It's matte paper. It's this or that and that. And then I said, well, what could you do to this catalog to make it better? And they said, well, you know, I think it would be better if we added some hand illustrated lettering. And I said, okay, well, you take the catalog specifications, you make a zine, an outdoor zine, very similar to what they put out, but you make a better version on your own. You add to your zine what you think they should add to theirs, and you prove that you could improve it, and then you send them that. And you will say, you will do, you have completed Inception Marketing, because like, this is exactly what we do, but better. We should hire this guy. And I think, I'll tell you who should have figured that out, and his name is Ben Affleck. And I think <laughs> this is the tale of um, the tale of a side quest gone wrong. When side quests go wrong, uh, you had Matt Damon really, really hit the nail on the head with Goodwill Hunting, whereas Ben Affleck, they weren't as precise as they thought they were when they wrote his role for Goodwill Hunting. And so Matt Damon played this um, unassuming genius. He was a janitor that was actually a genius. And, and Ben Affleck played the pretty boy townie. Now, when they were writing it, they thought this, this character that Ben Affleck plays is like maybe the more fun to play. He's got like big monologues. He's got an accent. Like he's, it's a really cool role, even if it isn't the main role. And it should be more fun. It even maybe should require better acting chops. But because they didn't realize how it would be perceived or they didn't tailor the role to the roles that they wanted. I think a lot of people's perception was Matt Damon, genius, Ben Affleck, towny, idiot, pretty boy. And Ben Affleck goes on to get roles as the pretty boy in like rom-coms and, you know, the butts of jokes. There's a joke on Family Guy where, uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, this is Family Guy from back in the day, I don't watch it anymore. I'm not co-signing Family Guy for any reason, any shape or of imagination, but uh, there's, there's a flashback in Family Guy of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck supposedly writing Goodwill Hunting, and Matt Damon's like slaving away at it, and, uh, and Ben Affleck's eating pork rinds and not contributing at all. And I think that comes from our perception of them from the roles that they wrote. And so when you're writing your roles, when you're making these side projects, you, the more precise that you can spell out your potential and show them exactly what you want them to see, the more likely you're going to uh, get the results that you're looking for. So if you want to work with this, if you want to do the catalog for a big outdoor brand, 
do a catalog for a big outdoor brand on your own, but even better, do your own version of it. Show them what you could do with it. If you want to work for the New York Times on the book review section, why don't you just start writing your own book reviews and illustrating that and trying to get a, a following behind it to prove that you're good at doing this thing, prove that you're the perfect person for the job. If you want to work uh, branding coffee brands, why don't you just work with your buddy down the street who likes to roast their own coffee and uh, create a brand for that. And if you can start kicking that thing's butt, if that brand puts it on the map, you're gonna be seen as somebody, as a go-to to do that thing. And so this is how tailoring your project to uh, the end goal can elevate it to the levels of a side quest. Now let's talk about how to do it. Okay, so you understand why this is a game changer, why you need to take it seriously, um, why you need to tailor your weapon to the boss. But let's talk about how to do it, okay? So um, so I'll just say, I'll just use the, the example of Creative Pep Talk, the podcast. Um, it's one of my, if not my most successful side quests to date. And I'll compare it to my early side project, Nod, which didn't have any strategy. It was really good for developing my creativity, not so good at developing my creative career. And why not? Because it had no strategy. It was not tailored to any end goal. And in fact, the end goal that it was tailored to was something I didn't want. So I was doing a new character every weekday for a year, but I did not want to be a character designer. And through that process, I got a handful of character design jobs and I sucked at them. I was, I did not want to do them. I was not good at them. And the people that were good at it crushed me. And so, uh, it wasn't me that sucked. It was my weapon. I was using the wrong weapon. I did not want to be a character designer. I was not the one to pull that sword from the stone. The character design stone was not mine to pull, but I, I neglected that. And that's fine. I needed to do that project at the time. But when it came to do something more strategic to, to develop my creative career, um, I did a bunch of different things that I detailed in the last podcast. But one of the most successful I've ever done is the Creative Pep Talk podcast. And uh, there was tons of layers of strategy in this uh, podcast. And one of them was it was exactly mirroring the opportunities that I wanted to get. I started this podcast out of an authentic place of helping creative people. That's why I was so passionate about it. But um, in terms of where I wanted to take my creative career, I wanted to get booked to speak at conferences. Um, and that was, and I wanted to tailor this podcast to that outcome. And actually I'd almost started a podcast like um, for four years before I actually did it. And I'm really glad that I didn't because if I had just randomly started a podcast, I wouldn't have tailored the outcome. I would have just done an interview podcast. And, and, it, and maybe I, if it was successful, I'd get invited to go to conferences and interview people uh, on, stage, on stage, maybe like be the, uh, the lead of a panelist of some kind. But that's not what I wanted to do. 
And so, in fact, just to make sure that I established exactly how I wanted this podcast to be perceived, I did the first like 50 episodes, like a year or something, just doing monologues, just doing a portfolio of talks that were indicative of the kind of talks that I could give. And uh, here's how I suggest you do that. How do you figure out the specifications of how to mirror the work to the end goal that you want to do? Uh, I think you've got to create a target of three layers. You think about a target, you know, one big circle, that's the industry. The inner circle is the market and the tiniest circle, the bullseye, is the niche. And if you can target your side project to this bullseye, I think it will turn into a strategic creative side quest. So, what does that mean? I'll give you the example of creative pep talk. So, the industry that I wanted to break into was public speaking. That was the big ring. It's a big realm, big swath of people. It ranges from high school speakers to corporate speakers to TED Talks to creative conferences, this giant thing based on this gift of public speaking. That's the gift that you should have, the, the, the talent you should have, the weapon you should have to get into that arena. That's where you need to go, that, that, or that's what the big ring is, industry. Then you got to narrow it down from there because you can't just, like that's just not targeted enough to tell you what kind of project to make. The second layer that I wanted to go into was the market the market, the section of that industry where I fit in was creative public speakers. Now, this is a slightly smaller group of people that speak at uh, creative events and creative conferences. And in order to unlock the potential of your weapon and to know what you need to bake into your project, you need to understand what does it mean to be a good creative in your market? Okay, so you say, so how do you do that? You learn from people in that market. So for me, three people uh, that come to mind off the top of my head, people that were uh, two, probably my two biggest influences in public speaking as a creative were uh, Frank Chimero and Aaron Draplin. So these two people, I was so freaking inspired and blown away from their talks. I can remember, uh, you know, seeing Frank's talk, The Shape of Design, and I can remember seeing Aaron Draplin's uh, Creative Mornings talk. I remember after watching Draplin's talk, having this magical feeling. I remember going to lunch after I'd seen it and just feeling euphoric, feeling like, everything's going to be okay. Like, I don't know why. I just felt like I found something. This is something. I got, and I didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind. Like I want to do what he's doing. Um, but it just, there was something about it. And actually just as an aside, when you're trying to figure out what's your weapon going to be, what's your market going to be, what's your bad guy going to be, where are you going to target this thing? Um, that's one really good indication is, 
uh, these magic moments. And actually, my friend Kyle Sheely did a talk over the weekend at Making Midwest where he talked about um, finding your place in the universe like a game of blues clues. And one of the clues he described as these just magical moments where time feels like it stops and the universe is looking right at you, speaking straight into you, and you can just feel it in your heart and your gut. Um, and, and to me, it was that thing. And actually, um, after we go through these things, I'm going to give you a little bit of two other ways that you can kind of help find where you should target if you're not sure what your dream client or dream job or dream opportunity is yet. Um, I'll give you a few other hints of how I started to navigate that. But that's one of them. And I felt this when I would see these people talk. And I learned from them. And actually, uh, they studying those people unlocked something for me. But you can't stop there. You can't just stop there. You have to take it a step further. You can't just be like these people in your market. You can't just fit in. You have to stand out, right? They don't need another, uh, they don't need someone else to design their outdoor catalog if you're going to do it the same way they did it. You have to add some of your fresh juice. Fresh juices. <laughs> what? What does that mean? Um, and how do you do that? You go to the bullseye, the innermost circle. It's called the niche. And so although I think I'm like these creative speakers in a way, Frank and, and Draplin, um, but I'm also, I don't think anybody would really compare us or lump us in with each other because we're so dramatically different, even though we all are creative public speakers in a way. Um, I don't know if they would like that terminology, but I do. I feel fine with it. And they're both incredible speakers. Um, but so both of those two people were coming from the world of design um, and also really different parts of the spectrum of design. And I'm coming from a totally different place. I come from the world of illustration. And not only that, colorful, crazy, psychedelic um, yeah, color-drenched illustration that's maximalist. And they're both probably minimalists. So there's all, all these dramatic ways that I'm really different. And so what does that mean? What is that target? That target of the industry of public speaking, the market of creative public speaking, the niche of uh, illustration. It means that my target might be being a keynote speaker at the Icon Illustration Conference. Like that would be a really good thing to reverse engineer. And that's probably exactly what I was trying to do uh, when I created this podcast. Even though I haven't quite made it, Icon, if you're listening, um, but, but I did. I have been booked at all kinds of other events and all kinds of conferences on the back of this very tailored, mirrored work. And that's what usually happens. You don't always get the exact brand that you dreamt of working with. It doesn't always work that exact way, but it gets you close. You know, you might not always get a bullseye, but even if you just get it in that market circle, you'll probably be pretty thrilled because you're making stuff happen. Does that make sense? So, real quick, I will tell you um, two other ways. If you're feeling a little bit, uh, if you need some help figuring out how to calibrate your inner metal detector on which dream job to shoot for, if none of that helped you, um, figure out. Because you've got to get 
all those layers so you can tailor your project to the exact specifications because the more precise you get, the less you'll be like Ben Affleck, the more you'll be like Matt Damon. Although I don't know if anybody wants to be like those people anymore, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> but if you... If, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to have a target. And if you're struggling with that, the first clue I would recommend is what Kyle Sheely talked about, which is just identify, identify those really big magic moments from your history engaging with the industry that you want to work within. Like what were the things that stopped you in their tracks? The other two things I would say are um, this quantity versus quality thing where you're saying for you – like one of the things I think we're looking for when we're choosing our weapon is instant quality. Like we think we should just be like, what's the thing that we're just crazy good at? And that should be the thing that is, you know, near our potential. But I would say a better indicator than quality is quantity. What is stuff that you will just do and do and do until the cows come home? What is the stuff you lose yourself in? If you will lose yourself in it, you will develop that potential. You will develop a talent. And to me, that was more indicative. I personally, when I was uh, even like 18 to 24, I would listen to like four or five talks a day. You know, podcasts and videos and all that. I was just insatiable. I had so, I would lose so much time in talks. And it was an indication that this was something for me. And then the second thing is we look to how other people respond. I always think you should start with an authentic inclination from you, but I don't think that's enough to build a career. It needs to be not just uh, a gift because it's something special about you. A gift is meant to be given away. It's got to be something that meets a need in somebody else that re resonates with somebody else. That's where you'll find the real gift. That's where you'll find something that you can actually build a career on. And so... So the second indicator is people's feedback over the years. And I think in this, we're always looking for quantity where we should look for quality. I think we flip-flop it. We look for quantity of response. We think, you know, if, if we're touching upon our true gift, our true talent, if we're, if we're in, you know, if this is the sword that we should be slanging, then we should get a million views on YouTube, it should be the post that we did that gets the most likes. But in fact, I would say a bigger indicator is not the quantity of response because there's all kinds of factors there that are maybe not the best metrics, but the quality of response. What are the things that you've done that have made people cry, that made people stop in their tracks? The thing, what are the things that you've done? And, and how does that overlap with the things you lose time with? And so for me, you know, one of my talks where I really started to figure it out um, one of the people that were there booked a meeting with me just to say, hey, what you did in there was really special. There's something going on with these talks. And nobody had ever booked a meeting with me just to say, you should really think about the potential of this gift that you have. And so what are the things that you've done where you've got really quality feedback? That will help you figure out which industry market and niche to focus on. And once you have that, you can reverse engineer a side project that's exactly a bullseye to that opportunity. So, I want to talk about this on a maybe a slightly more cosmic, deeper level. 
you know, I always like to add those layers to this show. And uh, I just want to talk about how I think that this whole process of identifying your bullseye, identifying the type of creative work that you are going to excel at, um, identifying which creative sword in the stone are you the chosen one to pull out? Like, I think that there is, you know, I'm convinced actually that a lot of life is about this question. What should I be doing? What is it that I've got? What can I wield in a more powerful way than anyone else in the world? And when I go do these interviews, I'm always trying to find exceptional people And when I go talk to these people that have done exceptional things, they've proven themselves in exceptional ways, they almost always talk about this sword in the stone moment, this thing that they found where what they had uh, unlocked this uh, ability to do this thing. When they figured out the market that they should be in, when they discovered that thing, it was this kismet moment, this this time-stopping moment, this thing where everything else changed and all of a sudden it went from tons of effort and pain and grueling searching to uh, this ease. This, and I, and I think that, I think that we're, we're, oh, we, we're looking for the ease, but I think there's this really kind of oxymoronical, I don't know if that's a word, oxymoronical, uh, oxymoron kind of uh, thing that haps- happens on the search to find that ease, to find that thing where we're, we're like swimming in our competency and it's just kind of second nature and it's just working. I think the tricky part is that it's hard to find the ease. See, hard and easy, they're the opposite things. And I think when we're looking for the ease, when things feel hard, we think we must be doing it wrong. You know what I mean? It's like, um, you know, we talked about how in Zelda you got to have the right weapon for the job. And if you have the right weapon, all of a sudden it'll be easy. Well, I think that uh, this applies to not just life, but also Mega Man. The game Mega Man. I just got both new legacy versions of Mega Man for the Switch. I just lost 99% of my audience, but the 1% that is still with me is freaking out. Yeah, baby, I got uh, Mega Man 1 through 10 and Mega Man X through X1 through X8 or whatever. I don't know what it is. Uh, but anyway, there's this rule in Mega Man. It's a video game where you're a robot and you're fighting these bad guys and there's eight levels you can choose from each one has a different kind of boss and each boss this is getting so complicated but my whole friggin point is this each boss has a secret weakness and if you use the right power on that boss they go from being nearly impossible to beat to being super easy to beat and the process of finding the secret weapon to use is really hard. But then once you have it, it's really easy. 
And I think in life, it feels like that. Finding the ease, finding the weapon that you should be wielding, it is really hard, and that can be discouraging, and it can be confusing, because you think, if it if it's this hard, how could I possibly be on the road to finding the ease, to finding that place where I'm just hitting everything through second nature, like a sixth sense? And so I want to encourage you, because I think that finding that moment, finding that weapon, it is really hard. But I believe that this is the process. I believe that the process is the process of elimination. If you have five suspicions, there's these five markets that you think you could go into. The process of eliminating them through side quests one at a time, it's really hard, but it is the way that you find the ease. And so, in my experience, this has been true. And uh, even, you know, when we're talking about creative pep talk, talking about public speaking, this was my experience. So I was, uh, I had done like probably five to ten talks before I found that ease. Five to ten talks that were disasters. I've talked about them on the podcast before where I went and did a talk and I kind of humiliated myself or I looked like an idiot or it was a complete disaster. You know, it was just a vibe in the air of like, you know, when a comedian bombs, like that kind of feeling. It's the worst feeling in the world. It's humiliating. It's excruciating. It's really, really hard. But I had to go through a lot of that hard stuff to find the ease. And it's still hard. But often I can get into that pocket. And the way that I did it, actually, was by doing this process. And it wasn't until I identified this market of public speaking before one of my talks. One, another, the little talk that really changed everything. It was the one that turned into why I did this podcast and went on this pursuit. Before I did that talk, I dove deep into... What do public speakers do? Like, how do they, what is this weapon? What are the specifications? How can you be precise? How can you hit the bullseye with this weapon? And I was researching, and it was actually uh, Frank Chimero, who, if you know him, you tell him he's, I'm on this podcast thanking him because he did something that really changed my life and unlocked my pencil in the stone moment, if you will, because before I did that talk, I was researching, how am I going to figure, how am I going to, I have this thing that I want to say, I have the gift, I've got something that I really, really want to share, but it's usually this esoteric stuff, I get up in front of people and I sound borderline incoherent, and I went and I read this article about making presentations by Frank, and he talked about analogies, but he didn't use the word analogy. He described what analogies were in simple words. He said, the thing that you're trying to talk about, find something that works exactly like that and use it as an example. And he broke down what an analogy was in simple terms. And it was a light bulb moment. I was like, oh my gosh, yes, not only 
did, was I able to do that for the talk? And it totally changed everything. And it made my esoteric incoherence into something tangible and relatable that everyone could understand and relate to. Not only was it this sword in the stone moment that I discovered something, but it was also like a Wizard of Oz moment because Frank put words to something that I'd always done. I'd always spoken analogy in everyday conversation ever since I was little. I remember doing it in high school all the time to explain the things I was thinking and feeling to my parents and to my friends. And I'd never really, I'd never had the, um, the aha moment to do that on stage. And it was this Wizard of Oz moment because um, it was Glinda. Frank, you were my Glinda who said... It's your ruby slippers. And by the way, you've had this power the whole time. And that's what this is all about. It's about finding the weapon. And it's not about the weapon. It's about who you are. It's about what the potential that's in you that this weapon unlocks. And so I am going to just implore you to believe that even if you don't have that ease right now, say it with me. Believe it with me. You don't suck. Your weapon does. You just haven't find, found the right weapon that unlocks that thing in you. You've got the ruby slippers. You just got to figure out what's the key to using them. Maybe you're just taking those ruby slippers and you're rubbing them on your face and you're smashing them against, you're clapping them together and you're kicking the dust with them, but you don't know. You got to find how do you unlock their power by tapping them, clicking your heels together. And it's really hard. That journey to find that answer is really hard. It's hard to find that ease. But here's what I want you to do. At the beginning of this episode, I talked about the fire spirit. If you can remember that many analogies ago, I talked about the fire spirit and how I had to find the ice rod. And once I did, I started running towards fire spirits and smoking them, right? Here's what I want you to do, even though it's hard. When you see those challenges, when you see this big challenge that I've laid out before you to find this bullseye, I want you to not run away from it, but run towards it, even if you don't know if you have the right weapon, to test out a new weapon. Because if you don't, you'll never know. And if you find out you didn't, that wasn't the right weapon, you go back and do it it again. And if you keep doing that hard stuff, you're going to find the ease. I'm going to just use one more example, because I think it's, it makes me emotional when I see it for some reasons. Um, (laughs) and it's the matrix at the end of the matrix, by the way, statutes of limitations have run out on spoiling the matrix. Okay. Neo's the one get over it. If you didn't watch it by now, it's lost on you. But Neo, the main character, Keanu Reeves is the one, he's the chosen one to fix the matrix. And there's these bad guys in the matrix called agents. And the agents are so powerful. They're like those fire spirits. When these good guys see the agents, they run away from them because nobody has fought an agent and lived to tell the tale. And then at the end of the movie, Neo gets shot and killed and then comes back to life. 
And when he comes back to life, the agents are stood there scared and he doesn't run. They run from him. And that's the kind of moment we're looking for. And that's the kind of moment that tailoring your side project to your end goals can create. And they have for me. Let's turn these side projects into a creative side quest, shall we? So real quick, here is a little testimonial uh, and uh, she's going to tell us about how she used the creative career path, uh, the booklet that we're doing on Kickstarter, the, the process that's in that booklet to get her target, to find her bullseye and do, unleash her dream opportunity. Hi Andy, this is Carolina Zolubak, aka Zolu Art, speaking. And I'm recording this for you because I really want you to know what you have done for me. I'm listening to your podcast every week since months, and it's my absolute favorite podcast ever. Your clear strategies resonate so much with my analytical being, so I was over the top excited when you announced the creative career path, and I decided to immediately try it out. On step one, know your industry, I didn't have to think much. I knew exactly what I want to do. I want to work as an illustrator. But already on step two and three, know your market and know your niche, is where I needed your help. I figured out I want to work for editorial illustration, but I wasn't either really convinced about it, nor did I have significant experience in the field to be absolutely sure. Your homeworks, especially the one about what is a good illustration for me and finding the perfect balance between art and business, assured me of what I wanted to illustrate and for whom. It became clear to me that my other background in holistic health could be my niche, which actually is very much in demand in the publications I want to work with. So step four was born, find your goal. Actually, I've always wanted to be featured in one particular magazine, which is Flow magazine, but I didn't make a clear goal how and with what I wanted to be featured in it. Flow magazine is a beautiful, mostly illustrated magazine where they speak about mindfulness a lot. So I figured my approach and my niche could fit. I sat down and reverse engineered my goal. I came up with an idea of a series of 52 illustrated behaviors that can make you feel better, which is my niche, and then started working on them. Ultimately, I thought I'm going to make a book out of them, my personal project, but I just couldn't wait. So, impatiently, I thought about how to contact Flow Magazine to show them what I'm working on. And there you came with help again in step six, direct marketing. As a regular listener, it stuck to my head that you were always saying, find the weakest link, and I realized that I've already written to Flow Magazine because of another unpaid feature of my illustrations, and so I had an email to a person that might be the person I need to write to who can make the decision to feature my work in Flow. So I took all my strength and courage and wrote a very tailored email on how I love Flow and what I've got going on and how it could fit into their magazine. And you know what, Andy? 
I got the job. I got the job I was dreaming of for months and I've already finished it. It's going to be published in August and made me so happy. I really couldn't have imagined. Uh, so I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for all the pep, the motivation, the free strategies that you are giving us every week. Thank you so much for your passion and your free work you're putting out there for us. It really does work. I am the proof of it. It works 100%. So Andy, keep on going. I can't wait to listen to your next podcast. And thanks again. You rock. Okay, there you go. So thank you guys so much for listening. I hope this unlocks... uh, (laughs) Your bullseye, your pencil in the stone, your matrix moment, your Mega Man moment, (laughs) your Wizard of Oz moment. Oh my gosh, ridiculous. So ridiculous. Um, (laughs) Golly. I hope it does. Guys, um, this whole series is about creating strategic side projects. Let's see where we can take this bad baby. Um, thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for all the other tunes. He wrote an original soundtrack for this podcast, especially for this side quest, quite, ugh, side quest series. You can go listen to it on Spotify or you can go download it at, on Apple Music or on, on iTunes. Um, you just search Creative Pep Talk original soundtrack and it will come up. It's really, really good for working to. It's all instrumental. Uh, I've been working to it. It's been my go-to work jams for the past couple weeks. Um, And there's even a song called Pencil in the Stone, which is very appropriate um, to this episode. Thanks, Alex, for making that happen. Thanks to all of you. And until we speak again, stay pepped up. Mm